Hello and welcome to the Coaching Podcast, coaching for success in sport and business. Your host is Emma Doyle, the energy and high performance under pressure coach who is a world leader in unleashing human potential. Buckle up for this high octane session. Let them have it, coach. G'day, everybody, and welcome to the Coaching Podcast. My name's Emma Doyle, and I have the pleasure today of introducing and interviewing Chris Cashell. I've known Chris now for many, many years, and I've jumped at the opportunity to, to interview him. So, Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Emma. Very good. Yeah. Good to see you. You too. You too. All right. Well, the first question is a bit of a patent break question. It is called the Vegemite question. You either love it or you hate it, and you're an Aussie, and you're an Aussie coach. What's your take? Yeah, no, I love it. I love it. And I've taken a jar of Vegemite on a number of overseas tours and people think you're crazy. They hate it, but we as Aussies absolutely love it. Yeah. Could you share with us a coaching moment that went really, really well? Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, there's, there's probably a couple, but the one that sticks in mind is um, I, being head coach of the AIS for 12 years, it was sort of a, a developmental program, um, athletes coming in, um, anywhere between one and two years, age 15 to 18. And one particular player, a female player, um, again, we, we've, it was always a democratic process um, that you had to apply to be, come into the AAS. But this particular one, we tapped on the shoulder to see whether she wanted to come into the AAS. And my theme around that was the planning. I I'd, I'd put together and met with her parents and I had a 12 month plan already set out with the second half of the year to look at playing in Japan, a number of uh, 10,000 events and finishing with a 25,000 event in Saga on uh, natural grass, which I thought would have been a great take for this particular player. So to cut a long story short, the player comes into the program ranked WTA probably uh, 660 and um, doesn't have a great European tour, work really hard, super hard over, uh, over a period before going to Japan. The four tens, and I've always liked to take the young girls to Japan because the way the Japanese play, you've got to play with a point of difference and play with variety. Um, so it was always a great learning curve, um, you know, get them up there to beat, to beat the Japanese players. So th this particular player won the first 10, won the second 10, won the third 10, won the fourth 10. So won four tournaments in a row. And the last tournament goes to a 25 on natural grass. So we're going from hard to grass. And you're thinking, well, the run's got to finish at some stage. Um, and um, another Australian player goes the opposite way with our Fed Cup captain and goes to the US Open and also comes to Saga for the 25. And these two players play off in the 25. The player is zero and six and put a game plan together and executes the game plan to a tee and wins that particular tournament. So wins five, five tournaments in a row, which a lot of people think, you know, how can you do that? But I, I guess the lesson was, um, you know, from a coaching perspective, one is the planning of trying to, you know, be meticulous with your planning of what you're trying to do. But when you're playing so many matches, the recovery component oh, it was so important right, to keep the player uh, up. And also, every time we had an opportunity to have a day off, we went sightseeing. 
So just to get the blend of tennis, life, the whole lot, different culture, different country. So that, that, that was, you know, one of my best coaching moments. And that particular player ended up number eight in the world. Ooh, so I like in 12 it. months, 12 months at the AAS, come in and was said about 660, went out after 12 months at about 132 and ended up number eight in the world. And that probably tells you who it is. But yeah, I won't mention it yeah. That. <laughs> that's a great story. I love that. Yeah. Thank so, you for so, so, yeah, planning, recovery, balance, the, the mm. whole scenario there to mm. keep a player up for that many weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that recovery. You know, it's not just the body. So important, the mindset recovery as well. Fantastic. What about on the flip side, Chris? Could you share with us? A coaching moment that didn't go so well and what might be a lesson or two? Look, I, I, I'm always a positive person and I've always said a negative has never won anything. So regardless of the situation, you've got to try and find a positive. But one thing as a coach that really got up my nose was lack of effort, both on the training court and on the match court. And again, when we get to the sliding doors moment, you'll see uh, how I was brought up that it really annoys me and a female player um, messed up an entry we had to go <clears throat> instead of going to a grass court swing we ended up going to a hard court swing and had to travel long distances or whatever um, you know I had to change the plan around everything and got to that particular tournament the lead up was okay but went out in a first match and tanked and I was furious, absolutely furious. So that, 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 that's yeah. probably my worst coaching moment. So, you know, you train so hard to perform on court and then when someone, lack of effort, as I said, that really gets up my nose. Mm. I don't think there's any excuse for that. You know, when you walk out on court, you might be carrying some niggling little injuries and whatever, but 100% plus is the requirement. And then if you lose... So be it, right? you gave it your best shot. But when it's lack of effort, you know, you've got to have a really good look deep inside yourself of why. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Fantastic. And uh, I think I might ask you a few more questions around how we motivate the, the next generation of today at the end of our official questions. <laughs> I'd love to get your take on that, a little deeper dive. But uh, all right, well, let's jump into the sliding doors question. You know it, so take it away. I guess these sliding door moments, the storytelling side of it, you get an understanding of myself as a player, as a coach, as a uh, as a person. And the first one, I was a 15-year-old uh, from country New South Wales, northwest New South Wales, Tamworth, and moved to Sydney as a 15-year-old. And I guess mentoring back then wasn't a factor, but when I look back, my mentor was Ken Rosewall. And you couldn't get a better mentor and I would practice with Ken and the scenario was, Chris, training is like war, not against me, but against the ball. And if you don't put in, nick off, don't waste my time. So, you know, go back to the 100%. So basically, if you don't give 100%, you actually regress. So we'd go and play five sets. I tried to model my uh, backhand. Roswell had the best slice backhand at the time. So we're talking in the 70s. Actually, Mark Kovacs used it the uh, last year as the Ken Rosewell drive slice backhand. Uh, and I've been big on that here in Australia, again, developing the slice backhand as a point of difference. But we, we also talked about, well, there were many things, but a couple that stood out were the spirit and the integrity of the game, that 
the player is not bigger than the game. And, and I think that was something special. So again, those training sessions, you go and play five sets and it was just hammer and tong. And, you know, as a 15 turning 16 year old, that sort of set me on the path of what I wanted to do with effort going forward to play, coach, etc. cetera. Uh, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, Ken Rose, one of a kind, hey? Yes, a special, special person, yeah. yeah. And yeah. just a legend, and, and even now, so uh, down to earth, you know, I see him at functions and we have a chat, you know, and he's well into his 80s. And just a great man, a legend of the game. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Thanks for sharing that. I didn't know you. Tamworth, I didn't know that. Yeah, Tamworth, yeah. Every day. Yeah. I so, love that about uh, the podcast. Other um, sliding doors moment. I was the first orange boy to be selected for uh, Davis Cup. So as a 17, 18-year-old, I went to uh, Pakistan and India with the, uh, with the Davis Cup team. And back in the 70s, it was pretty tough. It was under Neil Fraser as the, uh, as the captain. But what, what stood out there in very tough conditions, um, so they win the tie in Pakistan, they go to India, and the crowd is just an enormous crowd yelling and screaming. Um, but the commitment of the players leading up to want to represent their country was just outstanding. So, you know, a few days out, it was all hard work, two-on-one drills, et cetera. But then closer, the taper was always match play. And reputations meant nothing. It was who was playing best at the time. And as I said, to see the commitment of the players to want to represent their country was something special. And just a side note to that, just again, um, crossing the border from Pakistan to India was quite an experience as a, as I said, 17, 18 year old. Um, obviously there was friction between Pakistan and India back then. We had to cross the, so here's, try and picture this, the Australian Davis Cup team crossing the border with our suitcase on our head with machine guns on both sides of the border crossing into, uh, into India. Oh, so, wow. yeah. Yeah. So what 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 an experience. So oh, wow. yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And then to it's see the time, really isn't it? Already. Yeah, exactly. So commitment, resilience, whatever. And and again, a number of the players were sick, but they were up and about trying to represent their country. Mm. So yeah. But and again, Davis Cup now. It's so sad for us as Australians to see what's happening with Davis Cup. If, if you look up that 1974 tie, it will go down in history as the um, longest tie in the number of games that were played. Um, you know, there's 17, 15, 18, 16 sets, 12, 10. I think the doubles rubber was 99 games. Oh, wow. And I sat courtside for every point of that particular tie. So, you know, your learning curve is pretty steep when you're there mm-hmm. to, see, to see, what, uh, see what goes on. Mm-hmm. So that, that was a sliding door, Davis Cup. Another one was, um, and again, I guess this shaped me as a coach a little bit, Richard Schonborn was the chief German coach back in the day when um, Becker and Graf were at their their peak. And I think it was about 1995, he wrote a paper uh, after interviewing all the top players of the day, and it was called Common Characteristics of Champions. And it was sort of my Bible that I used and there were 14 points to it. 
And on those 14 points, there was only about four that related to hitting a tennis ball. So it was all around um, fighting spirit, uh, dedication to hard work in training, high resistance to stress, uh, maximum concentration uh, capacity, economy in movements, um, excellent um, perception and anticipation, and, and the high resilience to injuries. And that, that was, you know, as I said, that, that was my Bible then going forward. And I, and I used to get the players that come into the AS and rate themselves on those 14 components. And it was very interesting to, uh, to see what, uh, what would come out of that. So that, that was, and also, also from that, his charting was all about um, series of points and which related to momentum. And again, a series of points with three or more and the more series of points you can win, the greater opportunity that you've got to, um, to win a match. So that, that, that was his charting. And, and to me, that was very important. And to take that even further, um, when talent ID um, sort of came into play, you know, there were all the field tests and whatever. And I used to go around and observe a lot of um, matches and training and whatever. And Dick Telford at the AAS, he, um, you know, we talked about all the field testing, but he said the coach's eye is very important as well. It's what, what you pick up. So I was thinking, well, I, I need to have something when I go around these quick observations, what, what for me works. So I put this thing in place. I called it two bounces and love 40. So, again, the two bounces, if I saw in a warm-up or a match that an athlete let the ball bounce twice, I'd put an X. If in match play or in a match at Love 40, they rolled over and didn't try, that was an X. So it was a very simple um, uh, formula to try and work out the profile of an athlete. So go back to the series of points. You know, every point, you've got to be like the bee at the honeypot. I'd love 40 if you roll over. So a series of points now goes to four. So the momentum goes, continues. So, so that, that, that was something that was really important to my coaching in, in those 14, uh, 14 points. Another one, the most dynamic speaker that I've ever sat through was Bryce Courtney, the author of Power of One. Now, he spoke at the AAS Theatrette in Canberra. I forget what year it was. It was before... The, the Olympics, and he had everyone on the edge of their seat. And th this was from the young Jimmys, you know, 10, 11, 12 to staff of 60, 70 years of age. Everyone was just engrossed in his speech. But the, the thing that stood out to me was that he mentioned that someone has to be a, an accountant, someone has to be a doctor, someone has to be a champion, someone has to be an Olympic gold medalist. It may as well be you. And that's resonated with me for a long time through obviously my coaching, you know, and with, with, with coaching, one thing that I say to a lot of coaches, never be afraid to lose your job, never be looking over your shoulder. If you have the knowledge and the expertise, don't play a straight bat, be innovative in going forward, but don't ever be afraid to lose your job. Fantastic. Oh my goodness. 
Fantastic. I love that. I was speaking to Piotr from my good friend from Poland the other day who brought up Richard Schomborn and it's like the, his name's come up. I haven't heard his name for years and no. it's come up within the last week and you yeah. reminded me about uh, how what a pivotal place that he played in my formative sort of cool, especially those uh, all those activities around early coordination that was so instrumental in me that it's funny how it evolves, but yet yeah, you sort of forget yeah, sometimes yeah, the, the yeah. people who influenced you. Yeah, uh, just on that too, Emma, he, he, the, the other paper that he wrote was a great story, The Making of Boris Becker, and it goes through right through his development phase. And it's a great, again, it's an old paper, but to me, anything old is new. Um you know, they sexy things up now and put a yeah. new name to it. We were doing it 20, 30 years ago. So, yeah. It's a great paper. Yeah. 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 Well, both of those, I'll, uh, we'll see if we can maybe put them on the resource section yes. of this yeah. podcast because I think a lot of coaches would be interested in both of those. Mm -hmm. um, fantastic. So many awesome sliding door moments in one to a maximum of three words. What do you think makes a great coach? Yeah, it's a very, very good question. I, I think care factor, knowledge, and strong values and behaviour. I, I, th I think they probably come into play. And, and, the, and the care factor around if an athlete knows that you have their back, you know, it's a two-way enthusiasm, you've got clarity, there's compassion. The care factor is not for you just as a tennis player, but as a person. Mm. Um, so the, the overall development, I think that that is really important. Um, the knowledge of a coach, um, you know, the ability to upskill. The game's evolving all the time. You know, you only got to look at the men's game at the minute. You know, the return of serve position. Uh, I don't what, what's happening there. So knowledge, the ability to upskill. Um, and then strong values and, and behaviours. You know, the role of the coach, I, I think, is critical. You know, you are a role model and, you know, simple things, uh, clarity around what you're doing, you know, punctuality, um, honesty, trustworthy, have the honest discussion, you know, if, uh, if need be, um, you know, because there's so many decisions, you know, there's safe, political, moral decisions but you've got to go with your gut. So if you have strong values and behaviours, mm. I think you'll most times make the uh, make the right decision. So, yeah, I guess the care factor, knowledge and strong values and behaviour make a great uh, coach. And then if you wanted a fourth one, what, what's happening now, obviously, <laughs> with technology, data and analytics, it's, it's going to take over. There's no doubt about that. So being up to speed with um, that area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we had uh, Johanna Conta was on a very recent episode on the coaching podcast and she spoke a lot about values and her values aligning with the coach's values in terms of what makes a great coach. Um, yeah, fantastic uh, qualities there, mate. Really appreciate that. And finally, our last official question is where we ask you to ask us a question. When did you last make a winner? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's classic. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll be serious. I, so I, I guess the thing would be around uh, the trends of the game. And my mind is always 
kicked into the tactical component. You know, from a tactical point of view, what 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 are the trends that we we are seeing? Um, so that that would be one. And the second one, again, what I just mentioned before, what's the latest you know technology, data, analytics that you are using? Because there's so much out there that has been successful for you. You know, I know I know when the computers come out and all the charting and that I found it very difficult on the iPad to start with too. And, I, and I'm still um, pen and paper. I, I find that, yeah. Mm. But I know technology and data. So what, what, what works for you in, in that area with, mm. with the technology? So that they'd be the two trend, trends and technology yeah. of where, to, where does that sit going, uh, going forward? You know, because like if, if, if this facial recognition comes into, into the sport, you know, that, that's, that's going to change a lot around of how, how much information is out there for a coach and then it will come down to how much information do you pass on to the athlete? Mm. You know, you can watch a match now and get reams of paper, 30, 30 pages of information, but you're not going to pass on 30. So the coach has got to know what information do I want to pass on that's relevant to that particular, uh, that particular player. Yeah. Well, that was going to be my follow-up question. How much, when you would get the data, how much did you transfer? I know it's different from player to player, but generally speaking, would would your game plan be A, B, C, or or? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was again um, big on simplicity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, match match up your player's strengths first, uh, then look at your opponent's weakness have plan A, plan B, and then if that's not working, let's go to plan C. And, and there's, there's always that argument now with, with the modern game about power, you know, like they're, they're trying to dominate um, the point so early. So if you're, you know, free-flowing and, and being aggressive and missing all the time, do you continue down that path or do you go back and just play solid tennis to get yourself back into the match? And it's always, you know, I talk to coaches a lot about that. And it's, and it's probably 50-50, the discussion. Personally, I would go back uh, and um, and just play some solid tennis to get back, get, get some rhythm back. But, but again, going back, like I played doubles with a guy that had the best serve in the world back in the day, Colin Dibley. And he made me look good because he's big serve. So all I was doing was finishing off work at the net. But he, he would have a period where he'd serve a number of double faults and you'd say, well, let's just get, you know, some consistency and get your serve in. No, 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 I'll hit my way through it. So as I said, it's a, all, to me, it's a 50-50 argument, that one. Yeah, mm-hmm. but some, something something that's of interest, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So can we just take the clock back then to your playing career, uh, ATP 73 in singles and, and 19 in doubles, um, fantastic uh, achievement. Do you think you maximised your potential or do you think with a certain coach you could have gone, pushed yourself even further or what about on your own career? No, look, when, when I look back, like obviously um, moving from Tamworth um, to Sydney, 15 turning 16, back then we were called PYJs, Promising Young Juniors. And um, that, 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 that was a tag that stayed with us for a, for a long time. But, but the thing, the improvement that I made was competition. Like I, I played five competitions in a week when I went to Sydney against some very, very good players. So that, 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 that was super important. So within the space of 
you know, losing a match to the top player when I was in town with six love, six love, to beating that player 18 months later in the final of the New South Wales Championships just tells you how important um, comp- competition is. Yeah. Mm. Now, I, I was I was lucky enough. Um, I, I, I believe that I square. I always wanted to get to uh, top 50. That, that was my goal for where I've come from. Um, you know, I got to 73. I would have loved to play Davis Cup. You know, even in doubles. But to give you to give you an idea of how strong Australian tennis was back then, seventy three. I was ranked thirteen in the country, so that gives you an idea, you know, of, of what you're up against. Yeah. But it was a great era to play in. The camaraderie, like there weren't a lot of coaches around. The camaraderie of the um, Australian players was fantastic. I made seventy three as my first trip with Mark Edmondson. 76, he wins the Australian Open. Wow. So, um, yeah, yeah. So, and as I said, friends in sport are lifelong and all those friendships back then, it was a great era to uh, to play in. Yeah, and the Australians, they, the, as I said, the camaraderie was fantastic. I may have retired a little bit. You know, I retired at 23, but that was eight years. And I look back and people say, well, why didn't you, um, you know, continue just to play doubles? Well, you know the money and everything back then. Just playing doubles wasn't uh, wasn't great. Um, you know I was successful in doubles, um, but it wasn't great. But e- even in that last year of my playing, um, you know I mentioned about the tactical component. I always thought I had a calling to coaching. Mm. So as soon as the Australian Open finished, I went straight into coaching at Doncaster Tennis Club. Oh wow! So yeah, yeah, straight off the tour mm-hmm. to um, to coaching. Yeah. Why Melbourne? So, uh, my wife was from Melbourne, mm-hmm. from a little country town called Birdship, and we ended up in Melbourne. Um, there was nothing in Sydney at the time, mm-hmm. trying to get lease on courts, and the different situation with leasing facilities in New South Wales to club tennis in uh, in Melbourne. So I was lucky enough to uh, get the job at Doncaster and was there for um, for ten years. Yeah. So and again, what 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 a great experience that is. To to me, that's that's the apprenticeship. And the art of coaching before you go to the next stage, which for me was then 12 years at the um, at the AIS. Mm-hmm. So you learn a hell of a lot yeah. um, of, of coaching at, at club level. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it is important to, to sort of experience the gamut of coaching as well, isn't it? I mean, you know, being on court with a complete beginner versus uh, an elite player, it's, it is a good apprenticeship, as, as you say. Exactly, yeah. yeah, the art of coaching, yeah, across yeah. many fields, yeah. So yeah. what about, I'm noticing here as well, I didn't know that you employed by the Chinese Tennis Association. Um, could you share a little bit maybe even about what that was like as an experience and also maybe some of the different philosophies potentially that you that you came across during your time there? Yeah, it was a great experience. I they, they identified nine female athletes under Lee Nah for the London Olympics, and I was given two of those players to uh, to work with. But I was only a travelling coach, so I was doing it in um, six week blocks. So the first six week block was a training camp in Guangzhou. Uh, in early December, into or late November, early uh, through through December, and it was well. As I said, it was, it was a great experience to see the work ethic 
of the athletes and, and the coaches was something special. One thing that really stood out, how important footwork was to them. Mm. And it was all about the two words that they used all the time were explosive and dynamic. So footwork had to be explosive and dynamic. I was asked to write up a six-week plan for my two players um, for what I, what I had to do. And I, I was always theme-based. Um, so we'd work on a theme for a period of time, then move on and do another theme, et cetera, et cetera. So I did that over the six-week period, handed it in. They did not use it at all. Again, it was all about just hitting tennis balls. Yeah. Um, so volume, 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 volume. Don't care if we break down athletes. Volume, volume, volume. That, that was sort of the, the key. Um, but as I said, it, it was a great experience. I didn't finish on a high. I, I don't know for sure, but I think, again, back to my values and behaviours, one of the things that I was big on was you've done all your uh, pre-work going into a tournament. During a tournament, we'll focus on matches. I will identify um, some things during the match that we will work on for maybe 10 or 15 minutes after the match for your next match. But they were big on, it wouldn't matter whether it was 7-5 in the third or 1-1, one one, they would then go out and hit for two or three hours. So I stopped that with this particular player. And because, and again, why I did it was here in Australia. It was a $25,000 tournament in Sydney. The player was unhappy that I was doing it. But to cut a long story short, she won the tournament. So, you know, I thought, well, that's a pretty good effort. She goes back to China. I wait for my next six weeks. I get an email. Thanks very much. Your time's finished. Oh. So, yeah, I, I, now I don't know whether that was the reason, but deep down I think that maybe maybe that was, that they weren't happy that, um, you know. So, anyway, you move on. You put it down to experience. It, it, was, it was a great experience, yeah. So I, I had about 18 months, two years doing that, yeah. Mm. Well, it get, comes back to what you said earlier, never be afraid to lose your job. I mean, yeah, normally, exactly. normally yeah, exactly. we lose our job if we don't get the results, but <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a great story. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, what about your time at Tennis Australia? I know uh, even you and I took a team away together, Tennis Victorian under-18 team away together. I'll never forget that. Was that was it. That yeah, week Linton and Wilson Cabot, Taralga and Emma. Yeah, yeah. There you What go. a great experience. Yeah. What, what, what do you think about, I know that you've you've just um, retired, if am I allowed to say that, that word? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. What, what, what are you most proud of, like what, during during your time there? And just tell, maybe share with the listeners um, your main role and responsibility and yeah. Besides, besides Look, mentoring young coaches, sponges like yeah. the The last 11 years, you know, what, what a farewell, really, um, to five decades being in the, uh, in the one sport. So my role, it was a dual role. My title was um, uh, development environment manager. So the development was the coaching side and the environment was, I did all the research and development back in the... Um, uh, well, it started in the 90s when I was at the AS to bring clay courts into Australia. So I, I did a lot of work on that because with the redevelopment, there were eight clay courts going in at Melbourne Park. So that, that was the component there. So part of that, I went around Australia. Um, 
looked looked at all the uh, courts that we had, you know, loam, ant bed, Anticar, et cetera, that were porous surfaces. But if we're going to put something in at Melbourne Park, we need something a little bit better than that. So, again, the horizons broadened and it ended up, we put a research centre in at uh, Macquarie University in Sydney and we put down trial courts of Italian clay, um, Hartru and the Conifer Pro Clay, which a couple of WTEA events are played on. So we could get clients, the governments, et cetera, to go and walk around and play on all three courts. So that, that gave them a great understanding. And then it was up to the hierarchy to choose which courts they wanted for um, Melbourne Park. And it was Italian clay, which, which is a great, great surface. Yeah. So I've been banging on that for years mm-hmm. that uh, we need clay courts. So we've, we've got half the equation right. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I'm still you know, pushing is that we spend more time in Europe. And... Um, you know, like playing Australians on clay is completely different to playing Europeans on clay. Mm -hmm. And if I can go back in 2000, I did a feasibility study in Spain to put the AIS in Spain for six months. So I went to six different academies around uh, Barcelona and Valencia and came back and presented it uh, just verbally because I wanted to get a feel for it. Um, to the um, Tennis Australia board, and it was along the lines that this is the ace in the pack, something of what we're looking for. But then further down the track, when it got down to nuts and bolts of it, um, I ended up leaving the AS after 12 years and it then went in the too hard basket. But I'm a great believer that that should be something that um, has continued mm-hmm. the clay court development. The, the, co- the coaching side... Um, was um, with the high performance coaching course. So I was helping out with the uh, workshops, um, site visits, assessments, etc. And then the next gen program came into play, which again was site visits uh, and helping out with the workshops. Um, and then I mentoring, I did a lot of mentoring and it was a great team. Um, you know, you talk about, you know, loving um, going to work. So my boss um, was Scotty Draper and Belinda Colinary. Like you couldn't get two better human beings to work with. Um, and we just bounced off each other. And um, it, it, it was fantastic. And then the HP course, I, I believe, is, is one of the best. It's growing all the time. Belinda's got an incredible network of people that we can tap into outside of tennis. And that is always a highlight um, of when we do the workshops, etc. Yeah. Mm, mm. Well, as you said earlier, Bryce Courtney. Yeah. Well, what, what, one of the guys we've used a lot is um, Harry Moffat, who's just written the book oh, about 12, 18 months ago, 11 Bats. He's, he was uh, SAS. And we worry about hitting forehands and backhands. And when we talk about leadership and, and what they go through, the planning, etc. And you can just see the coaches when Harry talks or Melbourne Storm, you know, we get Frank Pacini over from Melbourne Storm, you know, just the professionalism and everything that goes with that. Mm. So those things are are critical for a coach outside of tennis to understand what's what's going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What would you say, I know, as you mentioned, five decades, but what about the, what would you go back and say to the younger coaching self of Chris? If you could give one message to your younger coach self 
uh, maybe how you might do something differently or a, a philosophy shift over over time or is there anything about uh, that? I, I guess and, and I, I was guilty of it in the early days the spoken word of, of talking too much I, I think that's one of the uh, one of the things so to the younger coaches that are trying to get don't overcoach teach your athletes that if you are not talking they are doing a good job um you know maybe a nod and a wink here and there but so often you know you'll see an hour session and it's actually probably broken down into maybe 15 minutes because of all the yap 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 so the spoken word i i think is uh, is critical yeah mm. Mm. um i love that so, yeah yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. very important so don't don't over coach mm -hmm. um and as I said, the game's evolving. All right, you've got to keep up skilled. Your, your PD is critical mm -hmm. right, to, to stay in touch with, uh, with what's going on. So there's a hell of a lot of information out there. Take it all on board. Use what you can. And if you don't like the other stuff, we'll throw it out. Yeah. But um, I always say to the coaches, you know, you, you can go and just roll along and play a straight bat all the time. But how about being innovative and creative? and try something different. And, and that's what I, when I go on the site visits, you know, I say to a coach, look, you're doing a good job. I'm just here as a different set of eyes to maybe give you some thought. Have you tried to do it a different way to get the same result? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't get robotic and keep doing it because you can get stale as a bottle of, mm -hmm. you know, what. Mm -hmm. So you, you've mm -hmm. got to change, change it up, yeah. change it up. Don't, don't be afraid to be innovative, creative and do things differently yeah. if, if they're not working. Yeah. Great message. What about your coach's eye? Was there someone who influenced your coach's eye or how did you develop your coach's eye? No, I, I think I just developed that myself. Um, again, as I said, through the observation and, and whatever. And again, I guess running into influential people and experiences, um, you, you pick up a lot of different things along the way. Like in another um, sliding doors moment was Djokovic years ago um, when he was number one in the world. He flew in from Doha into Melbourne. Um, now, this is a number of years ago, and he, they used to put the practice schedule up, and I saw that his first hit was on Margaret Court Arena. So this is going back a while because there's no roof. So I went out and had a look, and, again, the warm-up was nothing special. Um, he did some laps. He's very flexible. He did his TheraBand and whatever. But the professionalism with his um, kit and everything, drink bottle hat, sweatbands, he went straight to the baseline and I counted at least 80 balls, no mistakes. He actually bunted the ball off at about 80 and got his coach to hit a new ball in. So that, 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 that's something about, you know, I see so many juniors now, they make a soft unforced error <clears throat> and there's no correction. The next one's saying soft. You know, sure, we make unforced errors, but the soft is the one that you've got to eliminate. So... Let's look at the lesson of Djokovic. His first hit, he's just flown in. He's hit 80 balls with no mistakes. So that, that, that tells you something about the mindset of, mm. the, uh, of the player. The, the other one, that my pet hate, if I can give you one pet hate, um, unless it's for touch and skill, et cetera, and you're working on a continental grip or whatever, it's half-court warm-ups. Mm. I'm not big on that at all. Because basically what, what happens, you do a warm-up 
So you're building your intensity to a point and then they go out and they just stand there and fluff around. So they, again, back to what I was saying, they actually regress. Why not go back to the baseline and work on your trajectories? All right, we'll start slow and then we'll get down lower. So we'll start, you know, 50% and we'll work to 100% from the baseline. Mm. So again, that'd be something, you know, as I said in a site, because I'd tell a coach, well, look, look what you've done here. Uh, why don't you do something different in your warm-up? Mm. You know, that's a, it's a bit of a sheep mentality. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll follow that. But no, no, do something different. Yeah, yeah. I love it. I'm, I'm sure many of our listeners will be having a think about how they do things differently after this episode, which is what the coaching podcast is all about. Um, what about just going back to what you said earlier about because we're on the mindset topic, this next generation bunch of different personalities yes we have a player-centered approach to learning so we've we've got to adapt but at what point do you change your philosophy because you've got someone who oh they're a flamboyant or they're a creative personality and so they do things differently and they you know they like to hit trick shots to warm up or or that just as as an example but What's your advice on how do we tap into this next generation and motivate them when their mindset and potentially even their values are, are very different to what ours are? Yeah, yeah, completely, completely different. So, so just back to the mindset. Back in the day, um, the first book I read on mindset was um, The Inner Game, Timothy Galway, and I think everyone should read that. And that, that, that was a great read, yeah. Look, again... Um, the continuum of coaching has, has changed. Um, like the mental aspect of it is is coming into play more and more. So back 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 to a player that has a lot of flair, I would not do anything there. Well, I'd be more than happy to continue down that uh, that path if, if they've got. Because to me, that's a point of difference, and that's what you need in the modern game today. You need a you need a point of difference. So if if someone has a look at Kyrgios. You know, it'd be very difficult to coach. But, again, the flair that he's got, like if you, if you tried to curtail that, it would go backwards very, very quickly. So you let it go. And another player that I had going back at the AAS was probably the best hitter of the ball that I've ever had. And I'll say who it was, Andrew Early. Yeah. Andrew could hit the ball stroke production was as good as anyone um you could put together a video the best five minutes and the worst five minutes within a match that that's how it would be and again he was in his last year of juniors i think it was and he took um agassi i think it was at the australian open seven five in the fifth he he was that talented so but what one thing there why i did try there was that again we need to have you know the plan what we talked about b and c if it's not working, we need to get some patterns of play to get to get you back into it. And that was the most difficult that I've ever tried. So in the end, it was reverse psychology. Well, Buggy, uh, hit it down the line then. Don't worry about the pattern. So where do you reckon he went? Cross court. So, <laughs> yeah. so you, you, you got you got to laugh. Yeah. So, but yeah. So there. But again, anyone with flair, I, I, I'd leave it. Um, and again, add add to it what what you uh, what you can. Yeah. 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 Well, so many great messages, uh, and I think, like you said, add to the flair. But at the end of the day, 
you know, it comes back to the very start of this interview about work ethic, commitment, and uh, trainings like war. You know, even though yeah, they've got yeah, the flair, yeah. it's like what you you bring, you can still have that that yeah. that high value, that care factor, that knowledge. So many, so many great moments we could go on. Thank you so much for being on the coaching podcast. Any last words of wisdom that you want to leave us with? There was one saying, which again, for all coaches, and this was from CNN, and I don't know how long ago it was, and it was along the lines of coaching is the universal language of change and learning. And I think that's very important. So universal language of change and learning. And my favourite saying to that is, the day we stop learning is the day we run second. Uh, absolutely. And that that also just uh, anyone out there is a little bit of a horse reference. <laughs> I, keep, I always bump into Chris Cashel at the, uh, at the horse races in Melbourne. I miss them dearly. But, um, yeah, thank you so much for sharing just a, a snapshot, tiny snapshot of your wisdom over 50 years in the sport. We're so lucky to have you on the coaching podcast and in the industry. So thank you so much. Pleasure, Emma. Good to see you. The Coaching Podcast is sponsored by Transition Coach for Athletes, a global coaching, mentoring and U.S. college sporting scholarship placement service. Visit www.transitioncoachforathletes.com. That's the number four. The Coaching Podcast is brought to you by your energy and high performance under pressure coach, Emma Doyle, www.emmadoyle.com.au or email her info at emmadoyle.com.au. The ball is in your court to take action and enjoy your coaching.